history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined by my drinking buddy Illyri. Hello, what are we serving today? Hi Tim. Um, I should be drinking a porter but I'm drinking the closest thing I could get to a porter. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Which is, please tell me it's a drink. (laughs) (laughs) No it is a drink, it's not, and it's not port. (laughs) Uh, Right. (laughs) It's it's a beer from a, a brewery near me called Thomas Watkin. Uh, they've got a beer called Kuru Hav, which I'd like to say is named after me, but it's not. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just went in there and I said, have you got anything like a porter? And they said, no, this one's just like an amber ale. It's the closest thing we've got to a porter. I was like, mm, that'll do. <laughs> so, today, I am not wow. serving porter. <laughs> who knew porter was so scarce in wales (laughs) although although actually it is it is london it is a london thing in its origin i am drinking porter more specifically i'm drinking a porter that i made oh show off is it as good as my prosecco that i made (laughs) i mean those are some lofty heights to scale um (laughs) But I'm going to say absolutely yes. <laughs> it, it, um, it stomps all over your terrible Prosecco. So um, a little bit later on, what I actually did was um, I recorded a little section with the friend that I made this porter with. And uh, going against the name of the show, we actually did do a little, little bit of tasting notes just because we had to tap ourselves on the back for how delightful this has turned out. <laughs> so uh, you'll, you'll hear that shortly. But uh, I thought, in honour of that, we'll do a little bit of a uh, little bit of history of, of Porter. What's going on with Porter? Please do. And before you start, can I ask if yeah. you are going to save me a bottle of your finest? I am. That seemed like a really easy thing to promise last month when um, <laughs> when we'd finished making it. But I will say they've been ever depleted. It's now down to maybe a, only about six bottles in the fridge. No way. But I promise I will I will reserve one for you. Wow. Okay. <laughs> I'll have better get that quick. Mm-hmm. So the name, very simply, comes from the fact that it was very popular with street and river porters. Transport was kind of, you know, a, a big aspect of getting beer from brewery to pub and this was just kind of the most popular with them so that's what it's named after the street and river porters it was originally well hopped dark in appearance owing to the use of brown malt and it's actually the first beer style to be brewed around the world so production in ireland north america sweden russia all of that was kicking off by the um, end of the 18th century so it's really like the first commercial beer uh, and in order to get you to kind of how that happened, let me take you back. Doodaloo, doodaloo. Before 1700, London brewers were sending out their beer when it was very young, and they would just call it mild. Anything that was aged into a stale style, which does not sound appealing to our modern ears, uh, 
would have been performed by the publican or the dealer. So if you're going to age a beer in any way, it's not done at the brewery. It's it's done at, at um, the place where it's bought. And then what they would do is blend some of the mild with some of the stale when they sold it to the public. So they blend it to whatever the customer's tastes were. Uh, Porter is first mentioned in 1721 as a brew house aged development of the brown beer that was already being produced across London. And that innovation was attributed to a Shoreditch brewer called Ralph Harwood. And that was in the Bell Brew House. So Porter was um, one of the first beer stars to be aged at the brewery and dispatched in a condition that was fit to be drunk immediately. And it was also a style that could be made on a very large scale, which helped the London Porter brewers like Whitbread and Truman um, get that economy of scale and therefore financial success. So the large London Porter breweries actually pioneered some now very common technological advances. So the use of the thermometer in your brewing came in 1760 and also the hydrometer in 1770, which is what you uh, plop in, what we used in, in our porter to see what the gravity of it is so that you can figure out what the alcohol content is. So both of those things came into popularity because of the porter manufacturers. Um, the first porters were brewed from 100% brown malts, but now that brewers were able to actually measure the yield of the malt that they used, they noticed that the brown malts, although they were cheaper than the pale malts, only actually produced about two-thirds as much fermentable material. So this was the importance of having the hydrometer with the porters. That meant that when the malt tax was increased, because they needed um, extra taxes to help pay for the Napoleonic War, Brewers thought, well, I can use less malt then. And the solution was to use a, a portion of the pale malt and then add colouring to obtain the um, the expected brown colour. So it was cheaper for them. They got more of a yield out of it, but it was now just a coloured pale malt. Uh, there was a law passed, though, in 1816 that allowed only malt and hops to be used in the production of beer. So that gave them this additional challenge. And they solved that by taking advantage of the invention in the invention of almost black malt called potent malt or kilned malt. So it would have been like toasted over over peat and over fires. That was that was the year after that was eighteen seventeen. So it meant that it was possible to brew porter from ninety five percent pale malts and then five percent of patent malt. Although most London brewers also did kind of keep using some of the brown malt for the flavour. Um, the early trials that they had with the hydrometer uh, recorded Porter as having an original gravity of 1.071, which probably doesn't mean much to either of us, but translates to about 6.6% alcohol by volume. Um, so that's kind of stronger than you would tend to find Porters these days. Uh, the, the increased taxation during the Napoleonic Wars pushed the content down. And it remained there for kind of the rest of the 19th century, really. But then the growing popularity of the style prompted brewers to produce porters in different strengths. And it started with single stout porter, which was uh, 1.066. So I think we're somewhere around 6% there, 5% maybe. Um, double stout porter, which is what Guinness is at 1.072. Triple Stout Porter at 1078 and Imperial Stout Porter 
1.095, which is the strongest. So the name stout, which you would have just heard me saying a few times, is used for dark beer and came about because strong porters were marketed as stout porter. And then later that was just shortened to stout. So Guinness Extra Stout that we know today was originally called Extra Superior Porter and wasn't given the name Extra Stout until 1840. So... Today, the terms are kind of used by different breweries almost interchangeably to describe the dark beers. The two styles have almost everything in common and not much um, not much separating them because at different stages in their development, those they kind of meant the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, until about 1800s, all London Porter was matured in very large vats, often holding several hundred barrels. And that would be for about six to 18 months before uh, being racked into smaller casks and then delivered to the pubs. Um, But they kind of realised that they didn't have to age all the porter. They could just have a small quantity of highly aged beer, so the 18 months or more, and then mix that with the fresh stuff or the mild porter to produce kind of that flavour that would still taste a bit like aged beer. And that was much cheaper, obviously, than producing um, fully aged porter. And also required less storage for the beer to be aged. So the normal blend at that time was two parts young beer to one part old. And then after 1860, the popularity of porter um, and that taste for the aged one in particular starts to wane. So porter is increasingly sold as mild. And in the final decades of the 19th century, uh, most of the breweries had discontinued making porter, but they did continue to make the stouts so they'd maybe make one or two stouts, which were stronger, but the porter that had gone miles, they, they stopped making it. Um, those that did carry on with the porter for a while, it was much weaker. They used less hops. And I think that's the style that even today we're more familiar with as a porter. Um, 20th century. So there was a gap of about 30 years where porter wasn't produced at all in this country. Uh, And through that war period in particular, there was rationing here, so we couldn't use as much grain to make beers. But in Ireland, they didn't have that because they were officially neutral in the war. So they didn't have um, the the kind of rationing that we did. And that meant that they were really able to continue producing and dominating on the the stout porters. So Guinness, in other (laughs) words. Um, But we will leave the rest of the Guinness story for another day. Uh, Porter gets revived in America in the 1970s and continues to grow thanks to the craft beer movement, which is usually where these stories kind of end up with us when we explore a beer history. Craft beer brings it back. And here we are today. Thank you. Enjoyed that. Thank you. Paused for a sip. So I think on that note, you should probably hear the clip of um, of what we did when we tasted it. Now, yes. I, I said my friend, I should introduce her. Um, I actually cheat on you occasionally. Um, I don't know whether you're aware of this. I was not. But um, once in a while, I have a dalliance with another podcast um, that my friend runs called My Turn, which is a podcast about um, games. So it reviews games, video games, board games, all that sort of stuff. And, uh, well, both of us are keen gamers. And so occasionally she invites me on to uh, do a bit of reviewing Ugh. as part of that process. Well, <laughs> I know, right? I Cheating hope you're both you. very happy. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Um, as part of that process, I also pair the games that we review with a drink. Oh, nice. <laughs> so I, I use the knowledge gleaned from this podcast. And once we've reviewed a game, they'd say, well, what, what should we drink while we're playing this game? And I usually try and tie it into something historical or, or thematic. So, that's so, actually that's twist, twist in the life, that. It's like, oh, I, also, yeah. I cheat on you, but I also kind of use my learnings from you to give her a better experience. Yeah, that's right. <sighs> wow, okay. That's that's absolutely right. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible podcast husband that I am. <laughs> po- polyamorous podcasting. <laughs> I wouldn't say it's polyamorous, mate. <laughs> 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 so um anyway so this is this is my friend and i thought well seeing as we've made this beer together you can come and do a little podcasting spot on here so here is gem and myself trying our porter for the first time uh so hi gem welcome to the virtual pub oh yeah mate do you it's... like the fittings and fixtures and... yeah it's nice it's got that um familiar cheesy smell that pubs have before <laughs> yeah. they get too packed and it's yeah. overtaken by the smell of uh sweaty pits and yeah. burps and somehow a ruffian entered it so um <laughs> they'll, they'll be they'll be booted out before too long um so we've invited you in because we're doing this episode about porter yeah and we recently made a porter we did so i thought well let's get someone else's perspective on what that experience was like why we did it why we chose porter and i guess how we did it so where do you want to start so uh, a few weeks ago uh, tim myself and my husband embarked on an adventure into making beer uh, we turned up at a tap room and they came over to us and they asked, what kind of beer do you want to make? Mm-hmm. And uh, my little brain, I was like, well, let's just make it the most complicated recipe we can. <laughs> can we please make a porter? And uh, the rest is kind of follows on from there. Yeah, it was it was a whim of that will be tasty, please. Yeah. We looked at the array of things they had on offer. Yep. You spotted that they had a porter and we thought, And I love porter. One. And also, we should say this was actually your bride ale it was indeed my bride ale because uh, i managed to finally get married (laughs) someone said yes god help them it's too late for them to run away now um yes so as a lovely present from tim my bride ale we uh the three of us embarked on creating this masterpiece quite frankly um well we say masterpiece i haven't tried it yet no no um so i'm gonna open these bottles live and we're gonna find out what it actually tastes like. Now, obviously, this is called No Tasting Notes. No Tasting Notes. And we're pushing that to the limit by actually tasting this beer and telling people what it tastes like. But I feel like it's unavoidable on this occasion. We're not going to go with Jilly Goulden, but... I think that in this case, it's part of the process of the history of making this type of beer. Yeah. So I think it's valid. Also, as part of our making process we realized that we had so many more ingredients than any other beer that was being made oh i have got the list to hand and we're going to go through them when we describe how we did it how we did all this process so oh i can hear the clinking of that i poured it really fizzy half a bottle it each it's very fizzy which is a good sign it's gone through that secondary fermentation cheers cheers just gonna stick my nose in it have a little bit now, does a nosing note count as a tasting note? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't think we'd need to call this podcast no nosing notes. But well, now you mention it. Oh, okay. 
Smells nutty. Mm-hmm. A bit cereally, savoury. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I've got the coffee smell you want from a porter straight away. Oh, God, that tastes amazing. Sorry, guys. Um, this isn't the most riveting uh, podcast no, no. description. <laughs> it has to happen, though. It's this very is, nice. This is the first time I've ever tasted a beer I've made, so it's quite a special occasion. First of all, what I will say is I will mm. I would instantly recognise this as a porter. If I didn't know yep. it's a porter, I'd be like, it can't be anything else. No. Nope. It's it looks kind of, you know, dark and chocolatey yep. and tempting. But it, not thick like a stout. It's still no. got a bit of it's still lively, I'd say. Yeah. Both in uh, it, how refined it is, you can sort of see slightly through it in the glass. Yeah. And also the flavour is much lighter. You look at it and go, oh, it might be a bit heavy and stouty. No. Do you, want, do you know the thing I want to mention straight away yeah. is um, the guy who helped us make this said, mm-hmm. how smoky do you want it to be? And we were like, yeah. just mildly. And this is just mildly because yeah. it comes through right at the end. It's like the little lasting note of it's a little bit smoky. You don't get it first, but it comes yeah, later. Yeah, I would say more toasty than smoky. Mm. Even. Like that's how light the smoke level is. Um, it's absolutely damn delicious so uh that's really good i think well, if any of your listeners want to make a good porter um i think we can we can describe we can rustle one up we can rustle one up for you okay so let's get into the process then like how yeah. did it how did it begin can you remember because we were also tasting throughout <laughs> yeah so it did take place in a tap room which is both wonderful and dangerous um so we, <laughs> we got on the booze pretty hard but uh, before I got so drunk that I was just laughing the whole time, um, I do remember going through a sequence of flavours that we wanted to incorporate. Mm. So we sort of agreed we wanted something malty, biscuity, rich. We wanted a coffee note. We wanted a chocolate note. We didn't really want much bitterness. Mm-hmm. And uh, part of that was then selecting the ingredients that match those flavour profiles. The ingredients, I believed him, that you have a list of there, which we then had to measure out <laughs> Yes. on some really dodgy weighing scales. Yes. As it turns <laughs> out, that was the toughest part of the process. Yes. Because we were being asked out to, to weigh out very exact measurements of our different malts because we had so many. Yes. We found out halfway through that the scales were faulty and we yes. had to start all over again. Yes, we did. <laughs> uh, and that was quite, that was actually really nerve wracking because we thought, well, if we've messed up everything, then the beer's just ruined before yeah. we've even started. And the pressure there, it's like you're cooking a baby mm-hmm. and you've just <laughs> forgotten. <laughs> You've, yeah. You've got. Yeah. I mean, I mean we're in Titus Andronicus territory. Yeah, right? Yeah. You're cooking a baby and half of the baby's not there, or maybe there's too much baby in there. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. And you won't know until it's come out of the oven. Yeah. Um, this is a weird metaphor. It really <laughs> is. <laughs> baby pie, everyone. It's because it's because we felt very protective over the end result and we kept calling it our baby. I mean, I'll tell yeah. you what it's called in a bit. Oh, yeah. But we kept calling it our baby because we. Um, we wanted like live a live video stream mm-hmm. of how it was fermenting over the sort of five weeks that we left it to brew for. We're like, I wonder how it's doing. Is it okay? Is it bored? Does it need some company? Yeah, I've never been so worried about something <laughs> I've made before. Like, <laughs> it just felt so weird leaving it. Because we, we essentially, we measured everything out. We added it together. Mm-hmm. We stuck it in a massive kettle. Yeah. In a giant tea bag. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Cooked it for a bit, 
strained it, strained it off, squeezed it, much again like a giant tea bag. <laughs> um, got a bit more stuff out of it, and then added some hops i think towards the end mm -hmm. sanitized a bucket which was quite a fun experience yeah um shoved everything in the bucket and then we just had to leave it yeah abandon it for abandon all that time our beautiful porter so i'm going to remind us of what the ingredients actually Go were on then. um the bulk of it was maris otter uh, malt three and a half kilograms of that there was a, I mean, it was a hefty, it was a hefty tub amount, of everything yeah. we of everything we put together. But in addition to that, we had biscuit malt, aromatic mm. malt, brown malt, chocolate malt, crystal mm. four hundred, yep. smoked malt, oak wheat, cafe light, midnight wheat, yep. and then our hops were fuggles, and then it ended with a dash of protoflock. I've got I've got a couple of couple of interesting things I think about some of our ingredients. Hell yeah! So. Um, Maris Otter, I thought you might be interested to know. A cute name, first was, of all. Uh, yes, it is a cute name. It was created in the 1940s, not by someone called Maris Otter, um, but by a guy called Dr. Bell. And he works in tandem with Cambridge University, whose agricultural department, they had, um, they have a, a, like a plant research institute. Yeah. And... In 1955, it moved from Cambridge to Trumpington, the nice nearby village. Nice name! Yep. Oh. First of all, Trumpington. And yeah. they move into um, a hall that was on Maris Lane. Oh. And the people who were developing kind of new um, strains of botanicals named them after the lane that they were on. So oh. Maris Otter... Uh, was one of the varieties of malt that they created there. You also had Maris Mink and Maris Puma, but Maris Otter is the one that we still have. But it wasn't just beer malts. Uh, they also had a Maris Widgeon Wheat. Ooh. I love the word Widgeon. Widgeon is... What and does that even mean? Widgeon. Widgeon. Widgeon is a bird. Oh. Yeah. Like a pigeon. Like but a pigeon. But a bit wonky. But a bit wonky, exactly. <laughs> Peeless. And... Um, <laughs> And also, Maris Piper, that you're familiar the, with. See, before you even went into this, I kind of <laughs> wanted to intersect and say what my theory behind the name was. Can I do that now? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Before you go on about Mar See, yeah. my theory behind the name was that the inventor or the cultivator of this uh, was a potato and aquatic mammal enthusiast. Sure. And yeah. so combined the two. I mean, they were, in a way, <laughs> because, you know, they chose that name and they were doing other things with potatoes. So, um, yeah. But, um, so there you go. Maris, Maris Pipers, obviously named after Maris Lane that they were on, and mm -hmm. the Piper bird, Sandpiper. Yeah. Nice. Okay, bonus fact. Um, also, Fuggles. Yeah. Um, now, we specifically chose English hops. Yes, Because we did. Porter is a very English thing, specifically mm -hmm. London. Um and we didn't want kind of like those those American hops that are too hard, Flowery. too citrusy, all that sort yeah. of stuff. So Fuggles is meant to be earthy, a bit grassy, hint of mint, um, apparently. Uh, but that is named after a person. That's Mr. Fuggles of Kent. Oh, right, right near where I'm. Well, I'm from the sort of London Kent border. Yeah. So just down the road. Just down the road. Mr. Mr. Fuggles, Fuggles of Kent released in 1875. That's Aww. where Fuggles comes from. And the other reason that we... Because I was a bit confused about hops. I thought, well, do you need them? Why are we going to have them? Mm -hmm. They'll definitely add some bitterness. And it was actually put in 
because it also sort of sanitizes your beer. Yes, hops preserves beer. Yeah. I mean, that's why, you know, um, IPAs are so heavily hopped because they had to survive the journey over to India. Mm. Um, so that was just the practical use for it, yeah. Protoflock, I thought I'd mention just uh, quickly as well. Great because name as well. People might not be familiar with it. Great name. Protoflock is um, a, uh, a tablet version, an extract of, Irish moss, mm-hmm. otherwise known as carrageenan, um, or seaweed, a blend of different seaweeds, and that's used to clarify the beer. So mm-hmm. some other beers traditionally were still were using um, anim- animal extracts like isinglass from fish, but this is just a vegan way to do it with seaweed. So protoflock is just the tablet version of Irish moss. Yeah, it was fun, shoving a tablet yeah. in the old baby there. Yeah. yeah. God, I've got to stop with the baby metaphor. <laughs> Please don't shove tablets in your babies unless it's a medical recommendation from your trusted healthcare professional. No no tablets, just smear their gums with whiskey. That'll do the job. (laughs) (laughs) So I've heard. So how about, so we've... um, So we uh, we put all those ingredients in a tea bag. We cooked it up, essentially. um, Added all our stuff, left it to wait. Oh, there was quite a substantial amount of water. I forgot to mention that. Oh, the sparge. Yes. So the sponge is the water you sort of, um, once you've um, you drained off your, your wort yeah. from, from the cook's mash, then you want to put more water through it to make sure you get all the goodness out of the grains. That's called the sponge. Um, it recommended 10 litres, I think it was, and we went up to 11 because... We, we had it was, so many grains. It was so thirsty. She was a thirsty bitch. <laughs> Just needed that extra liter. She really was. It was funny because we were doing this side by side with other people who were making different types of beer, as I mentioned. I think there were three, maybe four IPAs and one Belgian beer. And we had by far the biggest mountain of stuff. Yeah. Of cereal and biscuity goodness. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, yeah, it did take that extra water just to get everything to push through. Yeah. <laughs> and then, then we left it for about five weeks and uh, came back for the bottling experience. So how about that? Well, that mostly involved me um, performing quite a rhythmic hand gesture yep. with a bottle and a sanitising <laughs> pump. <laughs> it was quite suggestive, it wasn't was. it? Yeah. <laughs> it was a phallic-shaped thing that propelled um, a sanitising solution of acid into the inside of all the bottles that we were going to use, but I found it quite satisfying. <laughs> yeah, I wonder why. Um, <laughs> so it's it's a weak acid that will kind of, you know, kill any bacteria, but uh, won't kill us, crucially, because... Um, Certain members of our team can't be trusted around liquids generally. Um, are you say, are you making a comment about me, Tim? Yeah, yeah. Um, for that <laughs> for that reason, you weren't allowed to do any of the bottle filling or the bottle capping. So no. that's why you were on sanitation duty. Yes, I was. Um, yeah, I towards the end of the filling, I had a little go because there was less liquid to be spilled. Um, but yeah, it was pretty fun. There's like a tiny little tap on the mm-hmm. what do we call it? A bucket with yep, a bucket, I guess, sure. right? Tiny little tap, and you had to angle the bottle just so mm-hmm. to get everything in there nicely without creating a mess on the floor. But the first bottle I filled, I did jog the bucket and spill a little bit. But, yeah, um, it's to be expected. It's to be expected. And I was mostly on capping juicy, kind of squeezing the caps down with a, with a little handy sort of clamping device, which was also very satisfying. Yeah. We managed to get 65 bottles of the good stuff out. We did pretty well. Yep. 
And I think we're going to consume them all. <laughs> I think we are too. And this oh. is, yeah, as Tim said, the first one that we've tried. Mm-hmm. And um, I've almost finished my half. As well, I think, <laughs> on that note, I think we should uh, cheers up, chin it and open another bottle. What do you Woo-hoo! reckon? I think so, Tim. All cheers. Right, cheers. Yay. So one thing in all the excitement that uh, I think I failed to mention was the big reveal of the name of the beer that we made. Would you like to know? I'm still reeling over how much of a whore she sounds. <laughs> <laughs> I'll let her know. Don't don't you worry. We'll find we'll find some occasion where you two can collaborate without me. <laughs> In the name of spite. Uh, all jokes aside, she sounds yeah. lovely. <laughs> I'd like to know the well, name. Won't go that far. Um, right. So we had many options for what do you call a porter. We decided mm. not to go with Billy. Not with Gail, and not even with Janet Streets. Gail would have been mine. (laughs) We called it Gregory. Yes! Excellent. Uh, Which I think very much suits the style, and and I hope um, he would appreciate. I hope he would appreciate it through the medium of song. (laughs) Greg. Maybe you should send him a bottle. Thing is, it's really quite fizzy now. I feel like it would explode in transit. So uh, I'm not going to do that. But if he wants to come and hang out, that's fine. <laughs> polyamorous. Uh, I... <laughs> yeah, exactly. More polyamorous podcasting. Um, can I tell you just a little bit more about porters, porter history? There's a, there's a sort of side note, which is Baltic porters. Okay. And that's a version of the imperial stout that originates in the baltic region in the 19th century so the imperial stouts were being exported from britain in the 18th century they got very popular and they just thought we could make our own we can make our own version so they used their local ingredients and brewing traditions so the early versions were still kind of warm fermented but in the late 19th century a lot of the breweries begin to uh, brew their porter with cool fermentation which does technically make them lagers um, rather than porters in particular, but I think we found there are varying definitions of what makes a porter. So their version, the Baltic porters, typically have high alcohol content um, over 10%. Baltic porter is a speciality in particular of Poland. Many Polish breweries will have a version. The country's oldest is Żywice, um, which was founded in 1881. That's spelled Z-Y-W-I-E-C, in case you want to find it somewhere. Um, there was one from Finland, Sinebrychov. Um, they've been brewing in Helsinki since the 1860s. And then there's a, a newcomer specialising in barrel-aged porters from Estonia called Pojala. In Denmark, interestingly enough, the word porter is completely synonymous with imperial stout. Um, and the the Baltic Porter Wilbros, which is actually owned by Carlsberg, is known by both names. It could be Porter or Imperial Stout. So if you're going over there from this country and you're familiar with the Porters here being sort of around 4 and 5%, then you might be in for a bit of a surprise, uh, <laughs> ABV-wise. And, and in fact, uh, Poland loves Baltic Porter so much that they started Baltic Porter Day in uh, oh. 2016 and it's celebrated annually on the third saturday of january do you think it's similar to beaujolais day in swansea <laughs> i really hope not i hope, I hope <laughs> nothing on this earth is similar to beaujolais day in swansea 
You have to come one year just to witness it. <laughs> right, what you got for me? Uh, I've got some cocktails. <laughs> mm-hmm. Delightful. Um, what, with porter? Yes, porter cocktails. So, mm. um, yeah, like, I mean, beer cocktails have slowly started to gain a bit of interest in the last few years. But um, porter cocktails seemed like a step too far. But there are some out there. People are doing it. Um, one's not so kind of new, actually. Um it doesn't really have a name per se. It's just porter and champagne. Um, mm-hmm. And it's a literally a 50-50 mix. You combine porter or light stout with champagne um, to just make a really rich and decadent drink. Um, so although it didn't have a name for that specific one, which is porter and champagne, there is a much older version, which is known as black velvet. And that mm-hmm. is usually stout and sparkling wine. Um, and that was actually uh, developed by a bartender in London back in 1861 to mourn the death of Prince Albert. Um, oh. And that black velvet cocktail, it's the obviously the porter and the sparkling wine. It symbolises mm-hmm. the black armbands that mourners would wear. Mm-hmm. So that's where it kind of originated, really, mixing porter with another drink or some fizz um but to this day porter and champagne can be quite popular so it's um, it's kind of black for the funereal element but still champagne so you can toast yeah but it's it, it life quite, presumably it's quite interesting isn't it that it started as stout with white sparkling wine when they were mourning the death of a royal yet now it's escalated up to champagne territory where it's a lot more decadent so it started mm-hmm, rel- mm-hmm. relatively humble and then it's just escalated good funeral drink top tip out there if you're looking for a funeral drink <laughs> <laughs> yeah hold hold on the corkies just get a, a yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and um, sing alana miles as the um coffin goes through the curtains also, or a bit is of Lana, Porter. It's Alana Miles, but, isn't it? I don't know. I just made that up. Do you know what I'm talking about? I have no idea. Black velvet <laughs> in the ah. slow southern style. Yeah, it's Alana Miles. Somebody did that on karaoke Top at knowledge. Was that last weekend. So <laughs> of course they did. <laughs> if there's karaoke, someone's always singing that song. <laughs> uh. Um... So fast forward to the more modern day and we find a really schmancy, unusual um, porter cocktail. It's got a really strange name and for the life of me, I could not find any reasoning behind the name. I'd actually found the article from the person that invented this cocktail as well. They didn't, um, they didn't explain the name. (laughs) Uh, So the name is simply Darkness at the Edge of Town. Okay. Um, and so this cocktail was specifically designed to be used with um, Deschutes Black Butt Porter. So despite the name, Deschutes is actually a brewery in Oregon, in America. Um, so they've got a Black Butt Porter that they wanted somebody to create a nice cocktail with. And so step forward... Um, a lady who owns a Minnesota distillery. Her name's Emily. And her distillery is called Five and Spice. And 
judging from what I've read online, she really knows her stuff. She's really experimented with flavours and creates some really unusual concoctions that sound bizarre but just work. People rave about them. This is a great example, Darkness at the Edge of Town. So basically the porter is used as a stand-in for vermouth and bitters and the cocktail is essentially like a spin-off of a Negroni. Uh-huh. So it's a beer cocktail that's kind of like a shandy, kind of like a Negroni and kind of just unusual. <laughs> so... <laughs> How to make it. Stir equal parts gin and Aperol with spice, uh, with ice. You then mm-hmm. strain that into a glass. Then top that with porter and a squeeze of orange juice. It sounds crazy, but apparently it works really well. There you are know a what? lot of people online that say it's brilliant. I have all those things. I might make that for <gasps> our next episode. Do it. A report yeah. back. Okay. Do it. Well, I don't know if you've heard this before, but I remember it was more when I was at university. People used to drink, um, they'd order a Guinness, half a Guinness in a Guinness pint glass, and then they'd ask for that to be topped up with orange juice. So it's not actually the first time that I've heard of like mm-hmm. orange being mixed with drinks like this. And people used to claim that it tasted like um, a Terry's chocolate orange. The mixture of the orange juice and the Guinness. So, um, yeah, make it for the next one and let us know. I will. Um, Last cocktail. We're going Christmas. (sighs) Only however many hundred days it is until Christmas. (laughs) That many sleeps. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this cocktail is called The Good Cheer. And it plays off the idea of having uh, a boozy coffee after dinner. Very easy to make. It's three ingredients. Uh, the porter, some amaretto, and some cherry liqueur. Easy mm. peasy. You do have the option then of what porter you use. So obviously a coffee porter would work really well with that because it's a spin-off the whole spiked after-dinner coffee. Um, and it gives that kind of bitter roasted flavours to it as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, very easy to make. Fill the glass with ice, add the liqueurs, then pour the porter on top. Enjoy. Delightful. I think I'd want it warm. I'd want a warm kind of. <laughs> I don't know why. Because it's like... Christmas. You're already thinking about yeah. warm drinks for Christmas. Warm drinks. I wonder if you could just put like a shot of coffee in there. I don't know. Getting carried away, but yeah. <laughs> There's three porter cocktails for you. I've got a question for you. Yes. Do you like big vats? And can you lie? (sighs) I like big vats. And I cannot lie. Good, because I want to talk a little bit more about big vats. (laughs) Uh, Are we talking about VAT or vats? Because I might... No, like big barrels. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I like them. Like big barrels. (laughs) (laughs) So, the Griffin Brewery was one of the first to go in for building absolutely enormous vats for maturing porter. So, you Mm -hmm. know, I said it was like, this was the first kind of one to be really commercial and they would, you know, get hundreds and barrels and and mature them all at the same time over 18 months. So, this is a, a story I want to tell you about that. So, in 
1790, one vat was unveiled in Liquor Pond Street, which right. uh, I think is Clerkenwell in London. Great name, Liquor Pond. Great name. Uh, that stood 20 feet high and 60 feet across. More than 200 people sat down to a dinner inside it. So this was like a big stunt that the brewery started to do when they would get their new big vats. They would invite people in to have dinner inside it before they started, you know, obviously before they started brewing. Um, So yeah, 200 people sitting down for dinner. Five years later, Richard Mukes, it's spelled M-E-U-X, so I keep wanting to say Mo, but it's Mukes, was constructing another vat at the Griffin Brewery, uh, the XYZ, apparently, with a capacity of 20,000 barrels at a cost of £10,000, which is the equivalent of like three quarters of a million pound today. Like, what an investment. Yeah. You've got to be confident of your porter-making abilities, haven't you? <laughs> um, however, around 10am on the morning of Thursday, November the 13th, 1794, one of the brewery workers spotted a hat swimming on top of the beer in one of the coolers. It was John Stevenson Jr., um, who was a relatively new co-owner, who had drowned in the vat. And noticed he'd gone up to where the coolers were, fallen in and drowned in Porter. This sounds like an episode of The Simpsons. It does, but it's the hat, isn't it? It's the hat floating on top that makes it sound (laughs) cartoony. But that's just my little uh, tragedy teaser, because that wasn't the most well-known tragedy to occur to Mute's uh, brewery dynasty uh henry mix uh, of the horseshoe brewery um had a big vat and he couldn't lie and it contained <laughs> 3550 barrels of porter this um this the horseshoe brewery is on the site where you now see the dominion theater uh, which i believe is currently hosting dirty dancing and grease and you know, terrible things um <laughs> On Monday, October the 17th, 1814, at about 6pm, the vat burst, releasing more than a million pints, weighing more than 571 tonnes. Whoa! Yeah. So, it crashed down um, the street behind the brewery, New Street, and smashed into the buildings there, and uh, Great Russell Street, uh, the front's there to the north. Um, By... Relative good fortune, the tenements in and around New Streets, um, which were all occupied, were were actually not at the time. They were comparatively empty because of the time of day. So if the accident happened like an hour or more later, it would have been full of, um, you know, complete families, the men who had come home from work. And uh, the the tragedy would have been greater. But it did kill some people, um, killed some women and children who were still in there. This huge wave of beer, at least 15 feet high, um, came down the street, flooded the cellars, knocked at the backs of houses, washed people from first floor rooms. So we know uh, of one little girl, Hannah Banfield, uh, who was four years old and was taking tea with her mother, Mary, who was a, a coal heaver's wife, in an upstairs room of the New Street house when the back collapsed. The, the torrent of porter rushed in. Hannah was swept from the room through a partition and killed, while her mother was washed out of the window and badly injured. Um, Another child in the room nearly suffocated. Then at the Tavistock Arms, uh, which was a pub to stand away from there, uh, the beer had washed right through the tap room and into the street outside. Um, It poured into kind of the the basement entrances and the houses opposite. 
Part of the back wall of the uh, Tavistock Arms collapsed on top of one of the pub servants. Um, Eleanor Cooper, age 14, who was at the pump in the yard at the time, scouring pots. And she was dug out of the ruins uh, three hours later, still standing upright but dead. Um, and then another one, the uh, in the cellars of the New Street, there were a group of people. Uh, it gets worse. Um, they were nearly all Irish immigrants and they had gathered for a wake for John Savile, who was a, the two-year-old son of Anne Savile, who had died the previous day. Uh, as the flood of beer crashed in, five of the mourners were killed, including the grieving mother herself. Jesus um, Christ. And then a 27-year-old wife of a bricklayer, 30-year-old Mary Mulvey and her son, and then uh, Thomas Murray, aged three, and Catherine Butler, a widow of 65. So in the end, that was eight fatalities in total. More people were severely injured, but it actually could have been, you know, much worse given the time of day. Bloody hell. Yeah. That's cheery, thanks. I know, right? But the reason I wanted to go through it is because I think it's relatively well known. I think people know some of the details of this, that there was a great big flood of beer i've heard it spoken about in a lot of like comedy podcasts and stuff they mention that it happened and then they go on and tell a bunch of myths about it which is what i'm going to go through now do some myth busting but i wanted to start with the stark reality that it was surprisingly brutal because we i feel like we can't really imagine it you know just a barrel of beer bursting and it having yeah. this sort of devastating impact. We just kind of can't picture it. So I wanted to give you the full description so you know what the impact was. Um, okay, so here are some things that have been reported since that incident. Um, a few decades afterwards, and then also, you know, in contemporary accounts as well, because people haven't necessarily gone back to check. Um, so there were there's a claim that the VAT burst was heard five miles away. That there was a boom uh, that's not mentioned in any of the contemporary sources. There's another one that um, eyewitnesses um, told of people flinging themselves into gutters full of beer, hampering rescue efforts. No record of that. That many people were killed suffocating in the crush of hundreds trying to get free beer. Um, again, no contemporary reports. Um, another one that says the death toll eventually reached 20, including some deaths from alcohol coma. Um <laughs> Nope. <laughs> None of that seems to have been true. Um, there was there's an account that patients um, already in hospital for other illnesses that were unrelated to the beer disaster smelled the ale and began a riot in the hospital that they were in, accusing doctors and nurses of holding out on the beer they thought was being served elsewhere in the hospital. Oh no gosh. record of that. And there's another myth that claims... Um, that when bodies were taken to a, a nearby house for identification, uh, so many people turned up to see them that the floor collapsed under the sheer weight of onlookers and many people inside the building perished in the collapse. Again, not true. I think that specific report came from like a couple of decades later in a Norwich newspaper. As far as I can tell, because of the area that it was in, St. Giles area of the city, it was very poor there, very poor slums, lots of Irish immigrants... And I think it was just a case of newspapers kind of just sort of making up horrible stories about how those kind of people would have reacted if uh, free beer suddenly became available. And so they made up mm. all these sorts of crazy stories when mm-hmm. obviously, in fact, the, the reality was um, 
but much more difficult. And they, they, there are records of the time of people kind of volunteering and helping to clear the rubble and all this sort of stuff. So I wanted to put my two cents in there to say as funny as some of the stories can be and the idea of having that great big beer flood, actually the reality was much more tragic. <laughs> Just to yeah. cheer us all up. Mythbusted. Who would have thought that the media would have sensationalised the story, eh? Who'd have thunk it? Mm-hmm. Um, so the initial burst vats actually caused another vat to unplug as well. So it didn't fully burst, but it did add to the continuing flood of beer. So the um, the estimates for the amount of beer loss, originally it was about 8,000 barrels, um, which was 10% of their yearly production, but it actually came out as just... Well, about seven and a half thousand barrels of porter. Um, the brewery claimed that the estimated total loss was twenty-three thousand pounds at the lowest calculation, which is the equivalent today of sixty-six million pounds. Whoa. Yep. So they petitioned Parliament for a refund of the duty that he had paid on the lost beer. Uh, and the molten hops that went into it. So an act was passed the following year allowing the partners to brew duty-free on an amount equivalent in duties uh, to that which was lost. So that meant that they got about a third of their cost back. But it's yeah. still an incredible still, amount of yeah. money and waste. Um, one more detail I will share with you. Um, mm-hmm. So among, among the wreckage, um, they found parts of a private still that was uh, floating in the beer, so it appeared that someone in the adjacent street had been illegally making gin. <laughs> Good work. <laughs> yeah, I thought you'd like that bit to end. That's, that was the cheeriest thing I could find. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not really, but it kind of is, you know. Oh, anything else? Any other reflections? Uh, I, I, I don't think I have anything to add to that. It's pretty bleak. <laughs> Do you know what? It was pretty bleak, and so here's my promise. Next episode, we're going to explore other alcohol-related mishaps, but we'll try and make them much funnier. How about okay. how that for a deal? That sounds fun. All right. We'll <laughs> see you there. So our glasses okay. have run dry, which means it's time to call the porter and haul our butts out of here. Cheers, everybody. Bye. Love you. <laughs> Trying to bring the love so, Sorry, I'm cheating on you. <laughs> oh, no. Wherever I may roam, or land or sea or foam, you can always hear me sing in this song. Show me the way to go home.